Hey everyone, welcome to season two of the Legends of Retail podcast, brought to you by Convictional. We talk to leaders in retail and e-commerce, so you can learn from them about retail strategy, leadership, tactics, and team management, and take their insights back to your company. I'm your host, Chris Grushy, co-founder and president of Convictional. So what is Convictional? Well, in short, retailers use Convictional to connect vendors for dropship and curated marketplace. My guest today is a serial startup executive who co-founded one of the fastest growing startups in e-commerce technology, OpenStore. Michael Rubenstein is OpenStore's president and co-founder. He previously served as president and board member at AppNexus, rebranded to Xander, before and after the company's acquisition by AT&T. Prior to AppNexus, Michael founded and served as general manager of Google's double-click ad exchange, AdX. In this conversation, we talk about what Michael has learned from his stints at successful ad tech startups like DoubleClick and AppNexus, and how he's applying those lessons to OpenStore. We also discuss OpenStore's positioning in e-commerce right now, and how it's differentiating itself in the e-commerce aggregator ecosystem. I also get Michael's take on retail media, since his experience is at the perfect nexus of advertising and e-commerce. Here's my conversation with Michael Rubenstein, president and co-founder of OpenStore. Michael, thanks for coming on Legends of Retail. Really, really glad to have you here. Oh, great to be here. Awesome. I want to begin our conversation by starting actually at the very beginning of your career. I believe you started a marketing and advertising company where you connected brands with college campuses back when you were a student at McGill University in, in the 90s. I went to Queen's University in, in Kingston, Ontario myself, so we weren't too far away. What was this business that you started? And curious about some of the lessons you learned back then that maybe still hold true today. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I started a campus promotions business with uh, some other students. A fellow student walked up to me who I knew came up to me on campus and said, hey, what are you doing tonight? Not much. Do you want to start a business? Sure. And that's how it all got started in my second year. And I didn't realize it at the time, but we were starting a marketing and advertising business where we would essentially do free campus giveaways like whiteboard calendars and sell sponsorship. And it was my introduction to the marketing and advertising world. And so I learned a lot about marketing and advertising. I, I didn't study business. I studied international relations. And so it was my introduction to that subject. Amazing. And certainly probably more fruitful than many uh, business programs out there when kind of getting that, that practical hands-on experience. And so after McGill, you later joined an email marketing company in Toronto, uh, Flow Networks, that was eventually acquired by DoubleClick. I'm curious what you learned from that first startup experience and you know how have those lessons carried with you since? Yeah, well, that was a foundational experience for me. And it was one of the first internet companies built in Canada and certainly one of the you know original you know pioneers in the space. We we were really the first successful email service provider, uh, which obviously today is a huge category. People know companies like MailChimp. But in the late 90s, people were just starting to adopt um, email and use email. And the idea of a B2B email service provider was was totally brand new. And so, you know, for me, I, I'd obviously had a little bit of exposure to marketing and advertising. 
And so this idea that the founder, Paul Chen, had had was that, you know, brands will communicate with their customers via email, and it will be more cost effective than sending direct mail pieces was a really compelling idea. And so we built that company from a startup to become an industry leader over the course of a couple of years and ultimately sold it to DoubleClick. I mean, I think at that stage, you know, it was the the 90s, we weren't just trying to figure out how to build that company. We were trying to figure out how to build an internet company. And it was one of the first internet success stories to come out of Canada. Um, Obviously, we built a market leader. It was a great experience. I think I just learned so much um, about how to build a internet company and, you know, whether that's like hiring and how to architect a system for scale and how to determine if you have product market fit. I mean, there's so many foundational things that I learned and my colleagues and I learned, I think, through that experience. It was really cool. And... When you were at DoubleClick after Flow Networks was acquired, you earned a special nickname from your colleagues. <laughs> What's the origin story behind AOL Ruby? After DoubleClick acquired Flow Network, I moved to New York. Uh, that was part of the arrangement that we made. And I moved into a role where I was doing sales and account management and basically selling DoubleClick's products. And at the time, that was like, marketing automation, email marketing, um, you know, digital advertising, things of that nature. And yeah, AOL at the time was, you know, one of the internet leaders. I mean, this was like early 2000s. And I developed a, a, a number of really close business relationships there. I spent a lot of time in Virginia where AOL's headquarters were. And ultimately, AOL adopted wholesale most of the um, DoubleClick suite, which was huge for DoubleClick. I mean, it would be like in a B2B instance today, you know, landing a company like Facebook or Google or Amazon to be your customer. And so, yeah, internally, you know, I kind of got the nickname AOL Ruby because I, I had a lot of success getting AOL to adopt our, our uh, platforms. Selfishly want to ask about how, you know, you landed those deals and those larger customers, but maybe we'll put that to the side and go fast forward a little bit further into the double click story where you, you know, reached a point where you wanted to go and eventually start your own company, you know, probably taking some of those memories away from McGill and double click CEO at the time convinced you to stay and build a startup within the company which eventually led to DoubleClick's now famous ad exchange product. I mean, very curious about how that all went down. And then I'll save my question uh, once you chime in on that. Yeah, well, this was, I think, 2003, 2004. And DoubleClick uh, had a great CEO, David Rosenblatt. And yeah, I mean, we were talking about my career development. And I said, look, I think I've reached the point where I want to go build my own internet company. I want to be an entrepreneur again. And he said, well, I've got an idea. Why don't you build an internet company here? And uh, I will give you an opportunity to basically build a division of the company. And it'll be a win-win. The company will get to benefit from the innovation that you bring. And you'll get the experience of building a business. And, you know, then if you want afterwards, you can go do your own thing again. And I really liked DoubleClick and I really liked working with David. And so it made a lot of sense to me. And then, I don't know, it was probably like a few weeks later, he came up to me and said, hey, do you have a minute? 
uh, an idea came up at a board meeting and, you know, would love to get your take on it. And there was an internal skunk work sort of project called uh, Project Wolf. Uh, there's a lot that's been written about this at the time. And it was like a code name project. And ultimately, it was, you know, a couple engineers and a product manager. And we partnered up together and sort of fleshed out a prototype and a business plan and ultimately launched DoubleClick Ad Exchange. And yeah, today, I mean, that's a business with tens of billions in revenue and it's owned by Google, obviously, and sort of the leader in the world of programmatic advertising. But the whole thing started with this Project Wolf, you know, very scrappy internal skunk works. And obviously, I think DoubleClick at the time had something like 200 million in revenue. So it was a really cool experience just to see how if you leverage the assets of some of these companies, you can create something much, much bigger inside of them. And, you know, corporations are notoriously difficult to innovate inside of. But I think that David did a really good job of like helping set me up for success. And ultimately, the results were there. That is, I mean, a wonderful experience that clearly led to an incredibly legendary product. I want to kind of go back to the last point and kind of think about how CEOs should foster entrepreneurship within their own companies. And there are other famous examples of this that have gone really well. Um, one example that comes to mind is you know, uh, Jeff Bezos uh, and the Kindle team sort of taking existing product managers uh, and business development folks from within Amazon's marketplace product and basically telling them, hey, go build the thing that's going to kill our ability to sell physical books, which, you know, again, another legendary story. How, you know, across these stories, you know, there are successes and failures. How should CEOs uh, foster entrepreneurship or startups within their own organizations? I think the key is that you need to be able to provide people with some level of autonomy. I think that autonomy and independence is really, really key because startups need flexibility. They need the ability to try things and fail. They, they need some space to innovate that's different than the space that the more mature company is occupying. At the same time, if you're leading one of these initiatives, you obviously want to be able to leverage the assets of the larger company. Otherwise, you know, why do it inside Amazon? Why do it inside DoubleClick? And so you need kind of that intersection. You need to be able to, as a CEO, I think, provide your team with a, autonomy and ind independence. But as an intrapreneur, you also need to find ways to build relationships, build connections, and ultimately leverage the assets of the, the original company as well. And so it's tricky to do. And I think you see a lot of problems like I've seen in some other companies that I've been in over time. You know, It's not intentional that big companies kill innovation. It's oftentimes like people think they're doing the right thing and they want to, uh, usually it's people who are sitting on the outside of the, of the new innovation. They're trying to help, they're trying to participate, or maybe they feel threatened, honestly, uh, by this new thing and maybe they're trying to kill it. I mean, I've certainly seen some of that too, but it's just very, very difficult, I think, to pull it off if you don't have the autonomy built in. And so I, I think ultimately that is a big part of it. And uh, another key ingredient would just be talent, right? Having the right sort of generalists inside of the company who can zero to one that next idea. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, I think what David recognized with me was that, um, you know, I'd had experience as an entrepreneur and I had a very entrepreneurial ownership mentality. 
But at the same time, I demonstrated that I could function inside a large enterprise. And so I think he looked at me and said, well, this person has the potential to be an entrepreneur. I don't think we use that term at the time. But I think about that now when I look at people who can be innovation leaders inside companies that I've grown, you know, ultimately are these people who could do what we just mentioned before? Can they lead uh, and build something, you know, really innovative while also being skillful enough to build the connections um, inside the organization that are needed and ultimately to leverage the full heft of the original organization? And so, yeah, I think it's really key. And uh, yeah, the process that ends up sort of calcifying inside of large organizations is never intended to slow down progress, but it can be. And so you need the right kind of person or founder or team to be able to shake things up and get things done where needed. I think that can be daunting, right, Um, for an entrepreneur. Yeah, it can be really tough. So fast forwarding a little bit uh, in DoubleClick and AppNexus, where I believe you went to following the uh, DoubleClick journey, you spent a lot of time in ad tech created to highly successful ad tech businesses. What did you see in e-commerce that led you to uh, help found OpenStore, kind of shifting away from ad tech? I've always been drawn to e-commerce, even in the earliest days at Flow Network. Who are my customers? Who are the ones experimenting with email marketing in the early days? It was J. Crew and L.L. Bean and online uh, retailers. Uh, and so, you know, I think I've, I've had a heavy intersection with e-commerce companies since the very beginning of my career. Certainly at DoubleClick and at Nexus, um, you know, obviously a lot of what I did around programmatic advertising was essentially making um, advertising online a direct response or performance medium and e-commerce companies were uh, many of them were you know very large and important customers and so it's just something i've always been drawn to but i've been on the vendor side i've been on the b2b side not on the operating side and so as i thought to your point uh, about where to go next after you know we sold app nexus to at&t and then i managed the integration of app nexus into at&t and was one of the people who launched Xander, which of course is now owned by Microsoft. You know, I thought, well, it'd be great to be on the other side. I mean, as you know, it's one thing to be kind of building platforms and selling into a customer base. I think you gain a whole new appreciation for that customer base and the problems and challenges of that customer when you're in the seat as well. And so I was really drawn to the idea of being an operator on the e-commerce side. I also was really drawn to the idea of defragmenting the fragmentation in the long tail of e-commerce, that essentially what I think we've seen over the last decade or so is this huge proliferation of e-commerce merchants uh, in the Shopify ecosystem, certainly in the Amazon marketplace ecosystem. And I think the idea of coming in and doing defragmentation and finding synergies and building something unique and cool there was very compelling to me. I think, you know, when I met Keith Raboy and Jack Abraham and Matt Lanter, Jeremy Wood, my co-founders at OpenStore, I think everyone was really passionate about this idea that there was a big market opportunity here and recognizing that especially in the Shopify ecosystem, there was a gap. There are all these aggregators that had arisen, like 50, 100 maybe, aggregators that had arisen in the Amazon marketplace. 
And so there was starting to emerge this very liquid market for selling your Amazon shop, basically, your Amazon Marketplace store. But there was no, we saw no marketplace at all for selling your Shopify DTC business. And when we started to look into why, I think a lot of the aggregators felt that it was just a more complicated world than the Amazon world. But I mean, we think that these are better businesses in many respects. And there are huge benefits to uh, what makes those businesses complex. It gives us more more opportunity to create value ourselves. And so I think we jumped in and we tested that value proposition. And it's just, you know, it's been well received in the market. I mean, Shopify sellers need uh, liquidity. Not every one of the 1.7 million Shopify merchants out there in the world want to continue running their business forever and ever. And I think for us to be able to come in and offer a quick and compelling exit for those founders when they're ready to sell is a really, really cool value proposition. And so I think all of those things together just made me feel like this is an opportunity I want to pursue. And one of my favorite tweets from Keith Raboy, he has a bunch, but one of the top ones that comes to mind is the formula for startup success tweet, where he says, find large, highly fragmented industries with low MPS, vertically integrate a solution to simplify the value of the product. And the fragmented you know, industry that you talked about with e-commerce is prevalent in so many different applications, right? From acquisitions to uh, B2B commerce, where we at Convictional play, you just see it all the time. There's different platforms and systems and EDI, and the NPS scores across all of these uh, system providers tends to be incredibly low. And so, you know, there's just opportunity everywhere you look within the sort of massive industry that is now e-com. But kind of going back to OpenStore, you know, in a past interview, you mentioned that you've identified 15 different dimensions by which you can operate an e-commerce brand you acquire more efficiently. So, for example, you know, you mentioned capital is typically a constraint many entrepreneurs have, but OpenStore doesn't have. Could you talk about a couple of other dimensions and how you are planning to make them more efficient in the context of OpenStore? Absolutely. I mean, one that's close to my heart, obviously, is marketing. You know, if you look at the typical Shopify merchant that we acquire, they are getting by on a very, very scrappy uh, set of marketing resources. They typically will work with a marketing consultant or agency or maybe a handful of them. They're probably not working with world-class technology capabilities. And if they are, they might not be optimized. And so I think for us, the opportunity to bring a product-first, data science-first, engineering-heavy approach to how do we ultimately build best-in-class marketing capabilities that could scale across all of our brands, and how can we build a single marketing organization that can support all of it with world-class expertise, I mean, it's just a good example, I think, where we can drive superior results and do it more efficiently than any one individual brand could be. I mean, most of the merchants that we acquire are quite small. And I think that, uh, you know, they don't have like a full in-house marketing team as one example. Another is customer support. I mean, we've built an entire customer support organization with Again, like world-class ticketing and issue resolution software and fast turnarounds and SLAs and things of that nature. I think when we 
find these merchants, they're typically working, you know, on a fractional basis with someone. And, you know, it's just another good example, I think, where we can bring a lot of value to the table. Makes a lot of sense. One of the other potentially dimensions is supply chains and every sort of successful e-commerce business may have a network of suppliers and vendors that enable them to manufacture and distribute products uh, to their customers. And so once you've acquired a business at OpenStore, how are you managing your relationships with the brand's suppliers? Um, are there any general challenges that might come up with working with suppliers who may have different systems or different supply chains? I suspect this is probably one of the other areas that you could potentially gain more efficiencies in you know, sort of bringing them together in a single portfolio. Definitely. And we are actively working to consolidate the vendors and build deeper relationships with some partners. So for example, in the world of 3PLs, we've standardized on a handful of relationships and we're working actively today to deepen those relationships, not just from a communication perspective, operations perspective, but also from a systems perspective too, to make working together more seamless and these migrations really easy. So I'd say it's a work in progress. It's something that we're continuing to learn a lot about and we're clearly going to invest in. Um, going back to the point before about how Shopify businesses are different than FBA businesses, you know, I think this is an area that is really important for us to get right. But if we do get it right, it becomes a real source of competitive advantage. So definitely a focus area. One of the trends that we're seeing, and saw this a little bit when I was at Shopify too, is like brands would get to a few million bucks a year in revenue and then begin to plateau. And at that moment, they, you know, many of them begin to think, how can I explore new channels, retail relationships, wholesale to continue to acquire customers and grow GMV? Are you of the mindset that like D2C is a religion in many ways? Or, you know, how do you think about um, the brands that open store acquires going um, multi-channel, going into perhaps uh, other retailers? Like, how should they think about that? And is sort of D2C just an example of a channel or should they be more, you know, I guess, um, restrictive about it? Well, I think for us right now, we're very focused on D2C. I think it's we're building our operations and our business to maximize that. I think it's it holds for us, I think, the greatest potential. Certainly, we care a lot about direct consumer relationships. It's part of the reason why we are building a D2C business and not a business through, let's say, the Amazon marketplace. So it's pretty core to our business plan. I would never say never to um, you know monetizing these merchants through other means and other channels. As it relates to other merchants out there in the market, I think increasingly what we're encountering is people are taking an omnichannel mentality, omnichannel approach, where they are seeing you know, different channels as, as just different paths to the consumer. I think ultimately, if you own the consumer relationship, that's best. But you know, certainly these demand aggregators like the Amazons of the world, Walmarts of the world are great at doing what they do too. So I, um, I don't think it's one or the other, but I think for open store at the moment, we're very D2C focused. And there's a lot of economies of scale that can be um, developed when focusing on a single channel like D2C to the point around you know, unlocking efficiencies across brands through whether it's customer support or marketing as well. It's sort of 
concentrating your efforts there, you know, there's a lot of value to be unlocked before jumping into new channels. I want to jump into retail media. Uh, one recent development in retail advertising is the proliferation of retail media, which are you know self-service ad networks on a retailer site. In 2021, it looks like companies spent around 31.5 billion on retail media ad spend. And so I'm curious about this as an expert in the ad tech space, someone with 20 years of experience here. Do you see retail media as a trend that retailers are likely to adopt? Or do you see it as a niche sort of ad experiment? I see it as a major new channel for advertising and major new channel for retailers to monetize their audience. So it is growing very quickly. And I think it has years of strong growth ahead of it. I think Amazon really has led the way here and demonstrated that a dual revenue stream model of advertising and transactions is really powerful. And I think others are going to try to follow suit and clearly are following suit. I think there are other reasons that make it particularly compelling in this environment as well. For example, you know, with Apple's changes to its privacy framework, uh, it's become increasingly difficult to target consumers online. Retailers have uh, a lot of first-party data, and uh, obviously consumers on retail websites are really expressing clear intent, which makes it an ideal advertising medium. And so I think it's a very durable trend. I think we're going to see a lot more of it, and uh, I think it's here to stay. Makes a lot of sense. And jumping back to Open Store, uh, you know, maybe a two-part question here. Um, now that you've been in business for um, a little while, I'm curious about the sort of general learnings that you know, as you reflect on your Open Store journey, that you've come to take away, and then what's next for Open Store, uh, the company, um, as you kind of chart the future. Well, I think for Open Store, Keith has talked a lot about this. Um, he really wants to just continue to be the number one acquirer of businesses in the Shopify DTC sector. And, you know, I think we are the owner of dozens of brands today. We'd like to be the owners of hundreds of brands. And so we're going to continue to push in that direction to acquire more businesses and to get better and better at operating them. And that's really the core um, focus of the company today is you know do more and do it faster and better and in terms of uh, where things go down the road we'll see I think if we can really you know establish ourselves uh, and establish a strong business in this area then sky's the limit so based on what open store does my understanding of the company and a look back on your career you're sort of the perfect person to be running this kind of company based on the number of acquisitions you were involved in prior to starting open store and so people will look at your background and see that you've been part of three companies that were eventually acquired you've done a couple of startups that have been um, acquired by other organizations you know were these acquisition experiences easier or harder each time you went through it earlier in your career? I would say easier and harder. <laughs> Sorry, I know that's a non-answer. The easier part was, you know, you start to develop a sense of all the different things that you need to do in order to successfully integrate an acquisition. And there's a lot. I mean, acquisitions go wrong all the time. And so I think 
you know, it's a real discipline, you know, learning about all the pitfalls and the places where these things can get tripped up and also seeing the others. I mean, obviously the sale, a number of the acquisitions that I've been involved with have succeeded beyond the wildest dreams of the, uh, the folks who put them together. I would say in that respect, um, you know, with experience, it becomes easier. I think the thing that becomes a little harder is that you put a lot of time and energy into building these companies, as you know, with Convictional. At some point down the road, sometimes you sell these companies and that can just be a bittersweet moment. Um, I mean, obviously, it's at some point in time, maybe the right thing might be might be the right moment. But um, it can be difficult to say goodbye to things that you've developed uh, intense emotional attachment to. That intense emotional attachment, I feel like, rarely gets discussed in the concept of an acquisition. I mean, partially because, you know, outsiders might say, oh, well, you know, you had a fantastic exit and outcome, you know, that people would dream about. But I think the perhaps another uh, maybe downside is being able to turn off, right? You're sort of running at hyperspeed, operating a startup, it's go, go, go for potentially many years. And then all of a sudden, you know, it's being able to turn off that I think people find uh, challenging. So, you know, no one can just go kind of 100 miles an hour and then go and just sit on a beach for the rest of their lives, right? So you need some sort of productive outlet post-acquisition to keep doing the things that you love, which is the work, hopefully, and you know, keep pursuing whatever your personal mission is. I don't know if that made any sense, but it seems like something that people would struggle with. It makes a ton of sense. I think those are really wise words and powerful insights. And I think we try to think about that as well and keep that in mind when we're acquiring these business from Shopify merchants. You know, it's not just another business. I mean, this is someone's work that they've put their heart and soul into for many years. And they want to know that we're going to continue to do a great job building and investing and taking the work that they started and really getting it to the next level. And so it's a great perspective and something we try to keep in mind and really important. And as we wrap up here, Michael, I want to move into our rapid fire round where we ask a couple of questions and you give us the uh, your immediate thoughts. How does that sound? Sure. Sounds great. Perfect. What is the most exciting opportunity in retail and e-commerce today? Well, I mean, obviously, I'm really excited about what we're doing with uh, aggregation and the long tail of e-commerce and, you know, building something really innovative out of these thousands and thousands of incredible businesses that are out there that are just under monetized. But I will also say I'm also very enthusiastic about the opportunity to more fully um, integrate e-commerce um, into social platforms. I think there's a lot being discussed right now about social commerce and leveraging influencers. And I do think that we're going to see enormous growth and innovation in that area in the next five to 10 years. And I think people who really master that are going to build really exciting uh, DTC businesses online. Amazing. And a brand you love and why? Apple. It's a brand I love, brand a lot of people love. I think the why, you know, interestingly, I mean, the user experience people talk about, one of our values at OpenStore is own end-to-end, and it does take some inspiration from Apple. The idea that if you take control of all the different nodes in the value chain, that you can have really 
strong control over the quality and the experience. And um, so I think that's a brand I love. And I think it's a company that at OpenStore we're taking inspiration from as well. What is the kindest thing someone has done for you? Well, I've benefited as have many people from mentorship from others over the course of my career. And I really think that is a very kind thing to do. It's something I try to pay forward as well. I mean, mentorship ultimately is about helping someone else. I mean, there generally is a a win-win there because, especially if you're in the same company. But, you know, oftentimes I think there are people who I don't even work in the same company who have offered me advice and mentorship. And I think that's an incredibly kind thing. It's something I try to pay forward. Amazing. Michael, we'll wrap there, but it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the Legends of Retail podcast. Anything else you'd like to share with the audience before we jump off? No, thank you for having me. It's always great to meet a fellow Canadian technology and entrepreneur, and I will be looking forward to hearing about much success for Convictional in the years ahead. Thank you. And uh, same goes with OpenStore. It's been an absolute pleasure, Michael. Thank you so much. Okay, take care, Chris. Thanks again to Michael for coming on the show and thank you for listening. To catch the latest episodes of Legends of Retail, please subscribe to the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also stay updated by following Convictional on LinkedIn or Twitter. Finally, if you want to share some feedback on the show, DM me on Twitter at Chris Grushy, or you can email me directly at chris at convictional.com. Thanks again for listening.